it's not, this technology is not a revolution, right? It's an evolution. It's, it's, okay. it's moving its way through time and it's only getting more mature. It's only getting more complicated. It's only getting more complex. And anyone around the globe that is watching, well, they began to watch it in the Middle East and then they saw it move towards Ukraine and other, other hotspots. But drones are the, I call it the platform that's sneaking up on society. And we're not prepared from a, a regulatory perspective to really address it. And the problem is there's so many platforms in use now in society. We're talking millions of drones are out there in, in private hands. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars Podcast. This is the number one podcast in the Americas. The only podcast, the only bilingual podcast uh, that goes beyond the border. If you're new to our podcast, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel or subscribe to any of the platforms that you prefer to listen to in Google, Spotify, Apple. Um, and I call it the number one podcast because, not because of me, but because of the the guest that we have. And we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, it, it's uh, a gentleman that I've known for, for a few years now, a gentleman that has had quite a distinguished career. Bill, it's good to see you. Welcome to D.C. I know you're in, you, you could probably come to D.C. all the time, but it's always good to see you and welcome you back. How, how, how was the flight? How's everything? Thanks, Joseph. No, great. Um, we just I just rolled in, landed about a half hour ago and um, made it over here. Quickly. That's the way to do it. Just yeah. get just get off the plane and go straight to the podcast. Yeah. And D.C. is is I'm very familiar with the D.C. Yeah. area. Came here. A, uh, used to come here a bunch of times. When was the last time you with the pandemic and everything? When was the last well, time? Well, um, that's a great question. I was I was actually here in October of twenty one doing. Um, I gave a keynote speaking event for my book. Oh, of course, of course. And that came out. Did that come out in October or November? Uh, November. Okay, I got my yeah. I got my got my copy. We're gonna talk about the book. We're gonna yeah. talk about this is this is so this this book. Let's let's just kick it off with that then because this book I was pleasantly surprised because. I've read a lot of memoirs of military men, you know, generals, even famous military men. And oftentimes it's a lot about their accomplishments, right? It's like, I did this, I did that, I did this. And so I was like, okay, you know, you know I know you're accomplished. So I was like, this is going to be interesting. I'll read it. But actually it was very kind of like a vivid experience. It was like going into, I mean, so I served in Iraq as well. Actually, we were in Iraq at the same time, the, the first time. We shared the same dirt. We shared the same dirt, exactly. <laughs> a lot of dirt. Um, and um, it brought me back. It brought me right back. The smell, I mean, I can't smell anything, but it, like describing the smells. And those are the intangibles that I think people don't think about when you watch a movie. Or so. You don't think about how nasty it smells right. you know, <laughs> the majority of the time while you're in Iraq. Yeah. So the book took took us there. It's called it's called Inside Abu Ghraib, uh, Memoirs of Two U.S. Military Intelligence Officers. Uh, it's written with you and also, I guess, with who's a, a general, I believe, right? He's retired uh, Major General Bob Walters. Bob Walters, right. Great, and then, great friend of mine. Awesome, awesome. And so we'll get into this, but let's, let's go to the beginning, uh, Bill, because you have a distinguished, uh, awesome career in the U.S. Army. Um, let's talk about when you joined the U.S. Army. Let's go all the way back to 1988. And as I was actually learning from the book, you were a football player. Yeah. So you were a wide receiver, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so what made a football player say, you know what, I'm not going to go and try for the NFL or go to like these, you know, division one schools. 
I'm going to go and be a U.S. Army soldier. What, what, what led you to make that decision? Well, the first one was my dad telling me I needed a real job. <laughs> That's the, 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 the second one was realizing... Your dad was in the military, right? He was, he's, he's retired Navy. Um, the second reason was the talent that I was playing with was far above my, my talent. It's a big jump from high school to college. Yes. Yeah, yeah so I was really good in high school, and when I got to college, I was average. Yeah. Where did so, you play? I played in, in San Diego. I played okay. at a high school, Poway High School. Okay. And then in college, did you play? Uh, Cal Lutheran University. Okay. And then I went down and played at Palomar Junior College. It was almost like going back to high school to play again. And then I was offered uh, to play at a Division One school and turned it down and joined the Army. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So you were going, you were on your way to Division One. Yeah. yeah, I was on my way. But you must have been really fast and talented because no. you're not huge. I mean, you're not, you're not yeah. small, but you're not a... Like, a, you know, you think of a wide receiver, 6'2", 6'3", yeah. you know, 230, 240 pounds. Well, in those days, people won't know this analogy, but I modeled myself against Steve Largent, who okay. was like a slot receiver. In, yeah. in today's football, you would say Wes Welker, okay. you know, or someone okay. like that. Okay. Uh, but those, those guys are big guys, too. I just, um, and I wasn't fast. I was <laughs> just crafty. Okay. So you knew how to get the job done. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, you, so you said, okay, I'm not going to make the NFL. Or if I do make the NFL, it's going to be like my body's going to be destroyed. You go into the army and I, I believe you went through ROTC. Is that right? Yeah. At San Diego state, at San Diego state. Mm -hmm. So tell us the beginning of the army. I mean, cause you like, I was going through your career, but like there's the, the formative years of the army, your first 10 years or so. Right. Uh, where were you stationed? What did you do? Yeah. So I had a, I had a great uh, time. I was commissioned as a, an armor officer, cavalry, okay. um, M one tanks. I went immediately to Berlin, Germany when I was uh, commissioned after I went through obviously officer basic training that mm -hmm. happens at Fort Knox yeah. in those days. Now it's at Fort Benning. It's changed. But um, I went to Berlin and I was in the Berlin Brigade. Uh, you went I, straight overseas. I did. Okay. Right to Germany. But the interesting, I should have wrote the book about this because I was the last armor officer assigned to the Berlin Brigade in history. Oh, wow. Because then the Berlin Brigade closed, uh, we call it Casing the Colors, Case the Colors two years later. Uh, but I spent two years as the junior officer in the brigade, which means I did everything that no one wanted to do <laughs> yeah. for two years because no one came in to replace me. So, wow. Wow. so, but it was a great experience. So you, you literally turned the lights off, closed the door, yeah. locked everything yeah. up. Wow. And at the time, uh, and he, he just recently passed away. Our brigade commander was a, was a, a well-known um, special forces officer named Sidney Shacknow. He was okay. the commander of the Berlin brigade. And uh, so I got to meet him and interact with him as a second Lieutenant, which was, That's which cool. was yeah. fantastic. And uh, what a great mentor. But, um, just, just a great time going to Germany. It's also where I met my wife. But in your first tour? Yeah, in, in Berlin. Because you were in Germany at least a couple times, right? Uh, we, we spent a total of eight years. Okay. Eight years in Germany. Okay. Yeah, for the first time and for the you second You speak time. German? Uh, I can get by. Okay. Yeah, cool. uh, pretty good. I mean, I used to. My wife's fluent. She's, wow. Yeah, she's fluent. She's American. She's from Kansas. Okay. Yeah, but she was going to the Berlin University. It was called the University, or uh, the Berlin Universität is okay. what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, she was going to school there. Very cool. So let's let's fast forward a little bit because the last time we had a chance to speak was actually on the anniversary of September 11th, the 20th anniversary, which was last year uh, of September 11th. And we talked a lot about how that's changed all of our lives, right? I think every American's life changed uh, with September 11th, but particularly uh, those that were already serving. So like yourself, I obviously don't have as distinguished of a career, but I was in the military before 9-11. And when you go into the military before 9-11, it's a way different mindset of mm -hmm. what your career is going to be like after 9-11 you know we're going to war mm -hmm. and we're all going to war and it's just a matter of time so uh 
after 9-11, you go to Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where we could start picking up on the book because um, we were in, I was in Iraq as well. I was in Iraq in 2003. I, and I want to set this up a little bit so people remember what's Abu Ghraib. So uh, obviously when people think about Abu Ghraib, they think about the, all, the, all the scandals. But we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But uh, we got to remember Abu Ghraib was at, in the midst of what is the, what called the Sunni Triangle. Is that right. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and at the time, that was like the most dangerous place on earth. Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> so, let, so the Sunni Triangle, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but it, it's, uh, let's see, it's Tikrit at the north, mm-hmm. um, Baghdad on the east, and then Ramadi on the on the west. Is that right? Ramadi, Fallujah. That, Ra- and then Fallujah's in between. In between. Yeah. And then uh, Abu Ghraib's in between Fallujah and Baghdad. Is that right? Cor- uh, going towards the west. Going towards the west. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and so Abu Ghraib... Uh, under Saddam Hussein was considered like the maximum security prison where he put all the people he didn't like, basically all right. the political prisoners, anyone that tried to challenge his power, he throw. So it was a torture chamber basically for, for Saddam's political prisoners. Uh, obviously after Saddam gets deposed, uh, the United States military comes in. It's a detainee center. It's a, it's, a, it's for, um, for detainees. Um, you come in right in the beginning. So, so take us to that. How, how, how did that, so, so our unit, we were a long range surveillance unit. So we were what was called a, a tactical exploitation battalion. So we had a balance between um, a LURS, a long range surveillance company, which was a large company, it wasn't a normal sized uh, army company, and then the tactical human teams. So that was really our mission. And we were uh, stationed in Balad. So we, we were on Balad Airfield, I think it was called at the time LSA Anaconda. Yeah. And we were, you know, we were living there and we had our mission set. We were working with a brigade out of fourth infantry division and we weren't planning on leaving. And then in October, roughly late October of 03, I was in the, in the tactical operations center uh, one night and I, the, the phone, the field phone rang and I picked it up. I was the XO of the battalion and um, it was a friend of mine in Baghdad named Mickey Williams. And he, he said, Hey, Bill, do you, um, have you heard of Abu Ghraib? I said, no, I've never heard of Abu Ghraib. He said, I said, Mickey, I don't even know where it is on the map. I didn't, I had no idea. And he said, well, look, look on the map and find it. And so I did. And, and uh, I was like, wow, okay, that's a pretty, pretty rough part of the neighborhood. And he said, yeah, take the battalion down there and fix it. And so our mission order was to fix Abu Ghraib, which was, if anyone knows about the military, that's not a task and purpose mission order. So I said to Mickey, what does fix it mean? And he said, Bill, I don't have time to talk about this. You just need to move the battalion and, and go fix it. So my boss was, is Bob Walters. He's the battalion commander. And he's also the co-author. He's the, the co-author of the book. And uh, I, I said to him, I hung up the phone and I said, I, we just got a mission order to take the battalion to Abu Ghraib and fix it. And he's like, okay, let's get everyone organized. <laughs> so that was that night, uh, less than 12 it was hours. Kind of, it was kind of combat orders, basically, yeah, in a combat environment. Yeah. Le- uh, less than 12 hours later, we were, we were on the road from Balad. Uh, you know, it's what was called MSR-1, Tampa, Tampa, or MSR Tampa. And we were heading to Abu Ghraib to go do a reconnaissance. So we were doing a leader's reconnaissance. Okay. What did you guys find when you first arrived in Abu Ghraib? Oh, it was, it was horrible. I yeah. mean, there was uh, the idea of discipline, standards, accountability didn't exist. Was there a military unit already there? Yeah, there yeah. was there was a unit there. What we tried to do in the book was not focus on on any of that. We yeah. wanted to focus on our experience of having to go there and and actually um, do the mission, right? And when we got there, our mission was the actual security of the FOB. We didn't have any any uh, thing to do with the detainees. That yeah. was still a separate mission. Uh, 
Um, so we went to set up standards. So you're, you're, you're hardening this, the, the yeah. environment. Yeah. We're, we're setting the conditions so that it, the, the uh, prison itself can be a fob. Yeah. So it can operate. I remember you saying in the book that at, when you arrived there, you realized, I think they had like no checkpoints or no entry security. So pretty much anyone could just drive in. Yeah. Well, when we got there, there was no, what we call an entry control point. Yeah. And in every fob in Iraq, you had an ECP and you had screening and you had all the things that took place before you were allowed to get in. This place, you could just drive right in and, and do whatever you want. It was, it, we were shocked actually. So mm. when we got in, we immediately, we were with, uh, we took about 20, 20 people with us from the unit, mostly uh, senior NCOs. Okay. Uh, the Sergeant Major and I rode together. And when we got down there, the NCOs just spread out and started started uh, executing discipline. That's so what they do. What were the living conditions like, right? Because this is, this is what brought me back when I started reading the living conditions. And you said something in the book that I thought was, I think it's hard for sometimes people to understand that everything you do, whether just like basic things that you do, like hygiene, sleeping, they become functional things. They're not like uh, luxuries anymore. You, you, like if you're sleeping, it's just, you know, you're finding a way to sleep so that you can recover. If you're doing hygiene so you don't get infected or you don't have bacteria, you don't get any diseases or get sick. Uh, so everything it now starts to become, have a purpose, everything in your life. Because if you don't, you could be in a world of hurt very quick. So, so, so tell us a little bit about the conditions yeah. inside the prison. Did, 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 uh, what caught you by surprise, I'm sure, but, uh, did it get worse? I mean, imagine it got somewhat better as, as time went on. I mean, you guys yeah. were- well, when we got there, it, it was just horrible. I mean, I say this all the time. It was the, the worst place I've ever been on the planet and absolutely just horrible conditions. So, um, when we got there too, it was the, it was the winter season, right. Or rolling into the late fall yeah, winter season. So well, it, it, it changes in temperature. You go from 120 to 90, you think you're freezing <laughs> and, and, um, but it's, it's muddy. Uh, there's no structure. There's no infrastructure. What's interesting is all the detainees at the time were living in tents right mm. around the, uh, compound because there were 4,000 detainees on this fob. That's a kilometer by a kilometer. Wow. So it's a small space. We're in the center of that living in a makeshift um, billeting area that we built ourselves with plywood, but it was a, it was a old textile factory that the prisoners used to work in, in the Saddam Musera. What was your your main concern other than the entry point, but what was your main concern? What did you really want to want to fix? Because what was the biggest threat that could happen? The the biggest threat was just securing the fob. I mean, there were, there were large gaps in the perimeter wall that you could just walk into if, if you wanted to, there was Did no detainees escape or try to escape. No. They, so the detainees were kept in a, it was almost like a, a detention facility inside of a detention facility. Okay. Okay. So it was multi-layered. Um, but yeah, they were in the open. Uh, they were, they were the most exposed to artillery and mortar fire oh, wow. because they lived in tents and you're getting mortars every day, three times a day, three times. Yeah. That makes sense. Three uh, or that, four times a day because the, the fob was so small, it was easy to target, right? Yeah. It was kilometer by kilometer. And this is right when the insurgency is starting to pick up, right? The insurgency yeah. starts picking up at the end of 2003. 2004 was one of the worst years. I think 2005 was, was pretty bad as well. It started to go down a little bit after 2006, seven. Well, then you had the surge, but in when we, we left in April of 04. Okay. And then the big fight uh, in Fallujah took yeah, place yeah. with the Marine Corps, right? In the that, army yeah. in that uh, late summer. Oh, wow. So, okay. Of 04. So did you guys see this? Like forming the, the insurgency forming, uh, we we were by that time we had lived there for so long that we were in into the environment, right? We, everything we sensed everything at that point. Um, uh, you know, th- at that point we were what almost 10, 11 months in, yeah, yeah. yeah, and and we were starting to see now the new units come in to replace us, 
um, with, you know, different ideas of how they wanted to do things. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I, honestly, the book uh, surprised me. It, it, you know, and I think, I don't know if everyone's going to have the same experience. I think for veterans that went to and served in Iraq, I think, I definitely think this is going to transform you, going to bring you back. Not all the memories are bad per se. I mean, they're just uh, kind of part of your experience. Um, and obviously some, one, one memory I have that not, I'm not proud of this at all. And, and I was, um, you covered it actually in the book. I had to shoot a dog, right? Mm. And people don't, I, I don't say that too often, but people always like feel like, oh, what kind of cruel person. I was like, well, you guys don't understand what kind of dogs we were dealing with. Right. I mean, these were <laughs> dogs that were inside the base and they're rabid dogs. I mean, these dogs were just trained. I don't even say trained. They were just ready to, to bite you at any minute. They don't have shots. They don't have immunizations. I mean, if they hit, if they bite you, you could lose a leg uh, because of rabies and bacteria and infections. So, uh, even that you caught, you caught that really. That I mean, I could tell right now we had the same experiences uh, in different parts. I was in uh, Akut. I was uh, a little bit further to toward the border of Iran, but um, but this book really, I think you did an excellent job. Um, I, I highly recommend everyone go out and buy it and purchase it. And for those that didn't go go to Iraq or didn't have a chance, if you really want to get a real world experience from someone that was there uh, on multiple occasions, but in this case, in the early part of the war. Um, um, you definitely want to read this book, uh, Inside Abigail. What what motivated you to write it? Uh, other than obviously you want to tell the experiences, but you have, a, I'm sure, a million experiences in your 30 years in 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 the army. What what did why did this one? Well, this one was most significant. Was it, it? it was the the one that it made it made me a better leader. Uh, going to Abu Ghraib and working with the people that were in the unit. We, we became a family, I mean, because we, and today we, we're still connected with yeah. most, most of the people that uh, were with us during that time. And I'm still good friends with Bob. Who, but, you know, what I wanted to mention was, you know, Abu Ghraib itself, it, one of the things we were fighting was staying healthy yeah. because it was so, it was, it was such an environment where you could just get sick really easily. And in fact, I, I had, uh, I don't know if I mentioned in the book, but I, I came down with a really bad strep throat during that time. And there was there was no way to treat it. You had to, you had to go to Baghdad or you had to go somewhere to, to try to get that treated. And, um, just things like that, simple things that we take for granted in at home, they're just hard to deal with. They're hard. They become hard problems. No, right? it's, it's, I remember that it's very much like everything. I mean, hygiene is such a big, in the military and in, in deployments and, and obviously in theater, it's such a big deal. Yeah. I mean, your feet, your, your everything. And I, I remember many people getting sick, off the simplest things. Oh, so yeah. They're not taking care of each other. Well, in the, the last last two things here on this before we, I think, transition, but the the book also talks about the family. So there's a lot of, of our wives and daughters' experiences, which I think is super important to the spouses and of of our military now, what what happens when your husband or wife goes to war, yeah. right? And and then um, just taking that into account and hearing their their side of it. What was interesting was, what my family wrote in the book, I had never heard before oh, really? until they wrote the book. Oh, wow. And then until we wrote the book until, and then you asked, why did we write the book? Well, because we had the time. So, uh, COVID happened in the United States and everywhere globally, and we had time. So everything slowed down. I called Bob and I said, do you want to, do you want to write this book? And he said, yeah, that would be great. Let's, let's put it together. The, the backstory on that was I was in London months earlier and I was having dinner with a friend, a British friend of mine. And he said, hey, Bill, tell me some U.S. military stories. And I started talking about Abu Ghraib. And he said, Bill, you've got to write a book. I mean, that is book material. I said, I said John, I don't know how to write a book. I don't, I don't have the time. 
He's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, introduce you to a good friend of mine, Paul Zanin, who he, is, he's the one that pretty much narrates the book through your experience. Right. Yeah. He's a, he's a professional author. He's okay, a, yeah. he writes about boxing. So he's a, okay. his, his passion is boxing. Fantastic guy. Great friend of ours. We become really great friend, both Bob and I with Paul now, but Paul guided us through the entire process. And really the book comes together because of Paul. And I think, um, yeah, I could tell because Paul really brings those experiences to life. Um, I'm glad you wrote the book because I think, and even in myself, I, I tend to forget 2000, 20 years almost yeah, at right. this point. So I tend to forget what happened. Um, and, and, you know, there's, I think, and what I also appreciated is, you know, most people, when they think Abu Ghraib, they think of the, the negative aspects of it, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 detainee abuses or, or, or the torture or enhanced interrogation. And that wasn't just the only story about Abu Ghraib. I mean, Abu Ghraib had a before and an after that. And and, right. and I think they finally closed Abu Ghraib. Uh, I uh, think they leveled it. Did they, they, that's they, what they, I heard. They, they leveled it. Crater now. 2014, yeah, yeah. that's what I heard. It's probably way overdue. <laughs> yeah, it was way overdue. <laughs> so, um, For sure. So that was the first time you were in Iraq. Yeah. Right. And then you went back to Iraq later in your career. What, was it 2009, 2010? Uh, we went, we did our PDSS in 2009 and then we deployed in 10. I was a battalion commander. Uh, the battalion I had was in, in garrison here in the United States was about 450 people. It was a smaller battalion. When I, when I got to Iraq, it was 800 people. Oh, so wow. it doubled. So how'd you see the country? few years after you, you had the initial experience. It was totally different because we were in, in this next round of deployment, we were, we were in a totally different part of the country. We were in the South. So okay. in, in OIF one, in the Abu Ghraib story, obviously we're in the Sunni triangle, right? We're in, we're in the heart of the fight in the South. We're in uh Dakar province. We're in Basra. We're out in, you know, Cobb Gary Owen in Amara. We're, we're all the Shia of the center. Yeah. We're in the Shia. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, totally different experience. And because there's, the the landscape itself is different you know it's it's all it's spread out there's yeah. there's not a really it's a big desert no, yeah no. unless you get to the cities like basra you know and so or nazaria yeah, and we were our uh the fob that i commanded uh in that tour was just south of nazaria but i also had command of buka which okay. was all the way down on the border. It was the other detention. Well, you met so, David, I think in the, in the, in the, and I'm sorry, in the webinar that we did back last year. Right. So David Granham's our senior fellow that uh, lives in Texas. He was at Camp Buka. Right. That, that was his assignment. So yeah. He was there. But he was there with the, was it the Air Force OSI, mm-hmm. Office of Special Investigations, uh, another intel yeah, unit. The, the thing about uh, Buka at that time was my mission was to transfer Buka to the Iraqi government. So oh, is that right? we had taken all the detainees out of there by the time um, I took command. So the, the Buka itself was a functioning fob, but the whole purpose at the time was to transfer it to uh, the governor of Basra province. Were you, were you guys able to do that? Well, yeah, I got a great story on that. I mean, uh, I was told by the, uh, I was at this time, I was working for the first infantry division commander and his, um, um, Division commander, the it's called the assistant assistant division commander of support. It was a guy named General Dragon, and uh, we had the his mission. His name is General Dragon. Yeah, Randy Dragon. Okay, he, nice. he actually, I think he lives here in the DC area. So anyway, um, I had the mission to have it turned over to the Iraqis uh, by the end of 2010. Okay. So I took took the took the mission in f- roughly February March of that year, and and took took us about 10 or 11 months to really get it ready to go. And on Christmas day, the Iraqis said they weren't taking it. And we wanted to do the transfer. Why? Like three to, 
there's a story behind that too. It's, um, it, it was more uh, personality driven. Okay. And, and so what we, what I had to do was convince the governor of the province in Basra to, to take the FOB. And this FOB had a multi-million dollar uh, waste management facility on it. It had a multi-million dollar water purification mm. facility on it. And it was a great asset for that part of the country. So uh, villages like Safwan could benefit or Umkasar. Yeah. Those places could benefit from those services. So that's one of the things I was trying to explain to the, uh, the um, political uh, uh, people of, of Basra. And so finally... I convinced him three days gotta, later. Gotta, yeah, we, we shook hands. How, how'd, you convince, how'd you convince him? I said, you got to take it. You don't have any choice. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to convince him. Yeah. yeah. And so, it, so he took it. and um, we called did, Battlefield Diplomacy. Battlefield Diplomacy. But I, I mean, for, for 10 months, I kept yeah. asking him, please. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like it was a good deal. I mean, you know, you're basically oh. getting all this infrastructure. and you, Fantastic. And I remember Umkasar is where the oil fields are, right? No, it's the port. It's the port. Port yeah, city. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's where it's where all goods come into Iraq, and basically, I think where what Buka is now, or I don't even, it's not called Buka, but what it is now is a logistics hub okay. for the port. Okay. And it makes sense. It's super close. It's it's not that far away. So uh, in this time, uh, so you, you you get the base, uh, you get the fob over to to the was it the governor? Is it? Yeah, they they're. Uh, the governor of Basra province yeah. took control of, of the FOB. Okay. Yeah. And and I remember in our previous discussions, you mentioning that this is where you actually got to see a bit more about what we're going to talk about next, which is the oh. point of a paper that we're going to publish that Bill wrote about uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, mm -hmm. uh, unmanned air systems. Uh, tell us about your experience with that. How did you get into drones? Was it this experience in Iraq or did mm -hmm. you know about drones before that? Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, great. So in OIF-1, you know, I had some experience with some of the army systems, the military systems, because we were, we were on Balad, right? And so we were, we were able to have some experience with what the military had at that time. Tran, uh, fast forward to 2009, 2010, I'm actually a commander of a unit that has UAV capability. And um, I'm in uh, reconnaissance and weapon weaponized drones. Or? No, just uh, ISR. ISR. Okay. It's ISR. So um, surveillance and reconnaissance. And I'm in Kuwait with the battalion, and we're getting ready to move the entire unit into Iraq, and then take our positions into the into the uh, OER, right? The uh, the um, operational environment. And not OER, that was my officer evaluation report. But anyway, <laughs> the else. OEO, the operational uh, environment. So. As I'm in Kuwait, I run into uh, another unit that is a UAV platoon that is looking for an assignment. Mm. So we actually just call Baghdad at the time and said, hey, there's a unit down here that's another uh, UAV platoon and they need a, they need a home. We'll, we'll provide them that home. So we actually added a second UAV platoon oh, wow. to the brigade, which is, was not um, common. Okay. So we ended up having two. And I gave, uh, I went to my commander and I said, how do you want to allocate these resources? And he told me, he said, I want to give it to an infantry battalion. I want to give it to an ar artillery battalion. And, and that's where it's quite an asset to have. I mean, oh, this, the commanders loved yeah. it. Yeah. The, and they're friends of mine. They both loved having those, that capability. So we gave that to them and we flew it 24 seven. I mean, that's what we did. We flew it 24 seven. It's a, it was a platform, you know, for the tactical brigade at the time. And at this time, the insurgents and, and, and the others, the militias, they don't have this capability quite yet. Right. So we have no. quite a bit of technological superiority, but that didn't stay that way. Right. Right. So I remember reading when we were doing the, the paper, I remember reading 
that I think it's 2016 or when ISIS was pretty much uh, strong, 2015, 16, that ISIS ended up getting their hands on some of these drone platforms and, and in some ways kind of equaled the, the battlefield, equaled the playing field to some level, which this, I think, gets into the heart of the paper. The paper is called Killer Drones, just like the name of the podcast. And the reason is because if we go back when you were in Iraq in 2003, that was pretty much a sensitive technology that really only militaries had the ability Correct. to operate. Yeah. Even when you get back to Iraq in 2009 and 10, you know, we have your units, the U.S. military has the capability to use these uh, platforms. But uh, commercial, they're not as available. And no, no. In fact, the the first commercial drone comes to market in 2010. Is that right? So, and it comes to market by a, a, through a French company called Parrot, and it's a it's a drone company. They they since this time they're no longer in the commercial market. They okay. still they still produce, I think, in other ways. But at that time, 2010 is when the first drone is available for consumer purchase. Okay, um, and that's when I'm in Iraq at it's 2010, 2011 timeframe. And I start getting really interested into this technology. And I keep thinking to myself, this is the technology that's evolving so quickly. It's literally going to sneak up on society yeah. and which we can get into Ukraine if you want to at some point, but, and, and other areas, but look at what's happening right now. We're, we're talking about complete drone usage from a convergence perspective of commercial and military assets coming together. Well, no, let, let's talk about Ukraine because, I mean, I think we, we kick off the paper with this because I thought this was a really interesting anecdote. They call them Terminator drones, right? So the Ukrainians who, who you know, they're they're battling probably one of the, the most, uh, I think the most authoritarian threats that exist out there, right? The Russian uh, uh, regime, the Russian military. And they uh, have some drones. I'm sure they don't have full capabilities, but the Ukrainians themselves, the people, have all kinds of commercial drones. Now, yeah. now it's very, become very popular. So uh, President Zelensky asks the people, he's like, if you got drones, throw them out there. And part of the reason was the Russians didn't couldn't tell which drones were actually weaponized and which drones were just for surveillance. Right. And so they started dressing up some of these drones to look like Skynet from right. Terminator yep. and would just freak the Russians out that they would get to a zone, drones would fly overhead, they would retreat back to their uh, operating spaces, and then the drones would find their positions, and then that's when they'd be able to attack them. Well, this 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 technology is, is amazing, and, and I hope people get more excited about it like I am. But if you go back, let's just take some steps back and talk about the Middle East and our conflicts. So- when I was in 2010, you know, AQI was still the, the organization yeah. we were up against, that's, right? That's pre-ISIS. Right? Pre-ISIS. And um, they were starting to experiment with the commercial platforms because- Even back then? Yeah, they needed something, wow. right? They were, they were, they're smart. I mean- How did they get access to it? Because you said you just started around 2010, right? Yeah, I mean, the, it's, it, when it goes to market, it's you can purchase it. Okay. And, and, so they were first in line. Well, probably, <laughs> like, I, would, I would assume, yeah, I mean, yeah. but- you know, and so you see, you start to see this evolution take shape. And then as the uh, conflict in the Middle East, specifically Iraq and Syria, starts to build, more and more uh, of this commercial drone platform is used by um, ISIS. And it starts to mature, right? Because it, it goes from an ISR capability to a, a weapons delivery capability. So they start to refine those. Well, if you move a little further into time... Then you come into conflicts like um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Border conflicts. Border conflicts. Drones become very, very important in that fight. And then as we see in the early 2014 of Ukraine, 
the Ukrainians and the Russians, and there's a conflict going on even before this war has started. In 2014, it started. Yeah, the Crimea. Yeah, at Crimea, and, and then, of course, uh, the uh, border areas, but drones are being being used, and we're starting to see really creative and innovative ways of using 3D, 3D printed drones Wow, are entering the battlefield, things of that nature. And now what we're seeing, uh, unbelievable, and basically the whole point of this is, is that the evolution has taken shape, but everyone around the globe is watching, and which we'll get into some of the other things I think we'll address. So, so back then, right, so let's say 2010, when, when, when uh, AQI was one of the first in line to get this new French commercial drone, you know, back then, I'm sure the military's capabilities with drones was far superior to whatever the yeah. commercial side had. Yeah. Where is it at today? Has the commercial caught up um, uh, with the military? Where, where are we at in terms yeah, of this? To- totally different application, right? So capability-wise, commercial drones have amazing capability. Military drones are created for a different purpose, yeah. and they've always had a different level of, of capability. But if you talk about... Uh, uh, like payloads on a commercial drone. Cameras are 4K. Um, you know, you have LiDAR capability, you have thermal we, we, capability. We have a drone. I remember we, when we were uh, working on your paper, something that caught my eye was, you know, and I think people don't realize this, but um, drones can have internet connection. Right? Mm-hmm. And and because they can have internet connection, they can spoof and they could get into your Wi-Fi connection. And that means they can then steal uh, information yeah. and data. Is that something that you're seeing? Is that is that technology? Is that capability evolved to where we have to be worried if we see a drone, we can just like hide our phones or get off our Wi-Fi? Well, I mean, I think it's something. So I talk about it as a cyber attack platform. Yeah. Basically, someone that's creative or has the technical capability can can uh, put on its dro- on that drone what's called Raspberry Pi. Basically, it's a computer. It's a okay. compute capability, and that's how you can spoof unsecure networks. So if your network is secure you know, you're doing the right things, you're probably okay. But from a cybersecurity platform, yeah, we have, we have to be concerned with that. Not to mention the ISR capability yeah. from drones. I mean, just think surveillance and reconnaissance capability with these, the types of cameras. Um, DJI has a great platform out now called the Mic 30, the M30. People should look it up and see what the capabilities are, but you're, we're talking very high power uh, uh, payloads of, of ISR capability on those. Yeah, so one, one, I guess where where I start to get very concerned is not so much in the sense that just normal criminals can abuse this technology, which any technology is always available for, for illicit actors, but the major criminal organizations, I'm talking mm-hmm. like the big ones, right? The, the, the Mexican drug cartels, the Colombian drug cartels, the uh, Middle Eastern terrorist organizations. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing them now embracing this technology? I know we've seen, like we talk about in the paper, we've seen, uh, probably the biggest Mexican cartel right now is the Jalisco New Generations Cartel, and they uh, upload their drone footage on YouTube. Right. So they want to show you that they have that capability because it projects some sense of power and superiority, right. and people get scared. Right. So is this is this something? Tell us a little about the role of illicit actors in oh, drones. Absolutely. This is this is what I've been talking about though for years now. Is that again? It's it's not this technology is not a revolution. Right, it's an evolution. It's it's okay. it's moving its way through time, and it's only getting more mature. It's only getting more complicated. It's only getting more complex. And anyone around the globe that is watching, well, they began to watch it in the Middle East, and then they saw it move towards Ukraine and other other hotspots. But 
drones are the, I call it the platform that's sneaking up on society. And we're not prepared from a, a regulatory perspective to really address it. And the problem is there's so many platforms in use now in society. We're talking millions of drones are out there in, in private hands. I think you put it, it, you put a you data point in the paper. I think I have it here. You said uh, the global market of drones is expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of 20.5% uh, that could hit as high as $43 billion in just two years, in 2024, which is actually less than two years. So we're talking a lot of money. This is a big industry. Yeah, huge industry. It's And and that's why it's so, it's it's a topic we have to address, right? And so to answer your question, of course, any nefarious, any nefarious type of organization or an organization that wants to gain um, some sort of superiority from using that technology will use it. So what, what reaction are you getting from, from companies, from entities that are starting to learn or embrace that this is a potential threat when we need to do a vulnerability assessment right. of our compound, whether it's a sports arena or whether it's a concert? or What reaction do you get? Because I feel like probably a lot of people's blank stares. Yes. They just don't understand. No, that's this, it. Yeah. So what they're waiting for is the event to happen. The 9-11 for drones. Yeah. Right, or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, but what I worry about and what my um, my partners worry about that we currently do this type of work is preparing um, venues and facilities and any, any type of organization that hosts the public that the drone is, is a, it can be a threat. Now, it, it could also be uh, something used for positive aspects. You could be filming an event, there, yeah. you know, things like that. There's always uh, two sides to the story. But- in this case, we've got to prepare and, and risk mitigate as much as possible. And we're just not doing it. We're waiting. I think people are just waiting for that event to happen so they can say, oh, we need to do something. We shouldn't be that way. We should be more proactive. Yeah. That had, you know, unfortunately, you know, we're in Washington and that tends to happen here. Like it's a very reactionary uh, culture here in Washington. Policymakers tend to wait to uh, the American public has an outcry, usually because of something. I mean, we're experiencing that on all different levels. Um, but you know, I guess the idea of the business you're in is to prevent this. To right? try, yeah, try to, to educate, to prevent, to come up with frameworks and systems so that people can actually use them in a manner that helps their business. Um, we don't we don't do anything just to do it. We're doing it for a purpose, which is um, understand your the threat in your environment, understand how it affects your business, and what could happen if if someone in a nefarious um, mindset wants to put on a commercial drone. Uh, a 40 millimeter grenade. Wow. And think about, and that's the common, that's the common ordinance you see on these drones. Grenades. Yeah. Grenades, 40 millimeter, and they're easily dropped from a commercial drone. And if you did that at a, a public event, it's, it's going to be a bad day. And how, how does, you know, the thing when I think about is airspace, how, how does jurisdictions work? Because yeah. um, who's in charge of monitoring drone activity because uh, I don't think they fly as high as to where it would be like an FAA thing, or is it FAA that? Well, so it's, it, this is the struggle. So um, I, I've said multiple times that we're going to have a drone superhighway over our heads okay. in the next five years is what I keep saying. And I tell like, people to like, call like me. Back to the future, it's yeah. going to be cars. It's yeah. going to be drones. It's going to be drones yeah. and autonomous vehicles everywhere, yeah. ground, sea, air. But in this case, uh, drone superhighway, and, it, and not all of it's going to be bad. It's it, in the highway itself indicates that there's commerce happening. Uh, companies, and Amazon's right, trying to get into the all, drone, yeah. all types of companies are trying to get into uh, this drone delivery market, right? But you can think there's a lot of positives to that. Maybe medical deliveries quicker, sure, yeah. you know, uh, supplies, things like that. That could be good for society. 
But what you have then is then how do you determine what's good and what's bad? Um, and that's it. The drone police? They, well, yeah. th there's a term called unmanned um, traffic management, and it's a okay. concept, UTM. It's a concept that's starting to take shape, and we're starting to figure out what that should look like. UTM is is on the horizon of taking shape in this country. and, and Who, how uh, who's, 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 What authority is UTM fall under? Well, we need federal. I think we need the federal government to, to lead. be like a Homeland Security? Yeah, lead that effort, or the FAA. FAA. FAA, yeah. But the, re the question you're asking is, and I'm not an FAA expert, so someone could counter this, but at 400 feet AGL and above is where the FAA starts to yeah. monitor air traffic. 400 to ground level, that's where drones are going to operate. So I say two to four. That's okay. why I say it. Okay. Two to 400 feet. And that's a, and you won't even, at that, at that uh, elevation, you wouldn't even hear a drone. Yeah. I mean, that's how quiet they are. Wow. Um, in the paper, we get a little bit into the risk mitigation, right? So if you were to look, like, let's just pretend you get your, and so this happens all the time. You get your uh, businessman, your 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 CEO that knows nothing about drones, and he's you know, he's running a business, right? He's running a let's just say he's running a sports franchise, right? So right. he knows a lot about his industry, the market, and you tell him, you know, you're holding public events, right? And, and these public events have open airspace, and and you're in Mexico, and you know, there's bad actors that can potentially want to carry out some type of attack. Or what is your biggest? Uh, pitch to them or maybe I'm seeing pitches. The no, right no, that's word. right. That's yeah. right. What is your, what is your biggest way to so, so tell the, them on this? The, the value proposition or the business approach to this for, from our perspective is do a series of, of framework um, frameworks, security frameworks that will help the facility or the owner understand what the threat is and how they can mitigate the risk. So we start with this idea that I came up with called a drone vulnerability risk assessment, DVRA. Okay. And it's a framework. Say that again, drone vulnerability risk assessment. Yeah, okay. DVRA. And that's the- so Is that like a threat vulnerability assessment just applied to drones? Yeah, okay. exactly. And But it takes into account different aspects like point of launch locations, uh, wayfinding. You know, most, most drone operators, they navigate their drone by physical uh, structures. Yeah. So they wayfind, mm -hmm. right, to a place. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly my drone to that building and I'm going to turn it left and I'm going to go this way. That's a simple example. Okay. Um, so you, you do that type of assessment so that you, you know what the um, ingress and egress, you know, routes are into your facility. You, sort, you just do, you do a little bit of um, terrain analysis yeah, yeah. is what, really what it is. So the DVRA is what I call the first leg of the chair. The second leg is actually getting a company into your facility that does drone detection and monitoring through a technical capability like RF, right? Radio frequency or radar or even optical. So the second leg of the chair is a true assessment of the drones flying in your airspace from a technical perspective. Okay. So you do that for two weeks to 30 days and you can get a really good pattern analysis. Where, where do you get that information? So you, I, I have partners in the industry that, pr that build that capability and will provide it. They, so they, you can at any given time say like in a specific geographic coordinate or, or area, you can f figure out what, what drones are flying in that area. Absolutely. Is is it because they're registered or, or no? It, it well every every drone. There's there's two ways to fly a drone, either through RF radio frequency, frequency or through GPS. Okay. And so of course, yeah, um, like cell phones, yeah. Yeah. So it these companies provide that product and that service to to tell people what's in their airspace. That's the second leg of the, the chair. The third is what's called the 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 drone emergency response planning. So basically, you're you're putting together your plans to mitigate the risk of drones 
And then you're substantiating those plans into standard operating procedures so that your staff okay. can train for it. The fourth uh, leg of this chair is tabletop exercises. Simulations. So then, yeah, simulations. So then you exercise how you respond to a drone over your event. Let's say it's a Washington Nationals game and they're playing whoever and there's a drone event. If you've gone through these steps, you'll have at least a, a framework or a plan on how to react. What what kind of events you think would be most vulnerable to this? Oh, any any type of I mean, in this day and age, it's any type of concert, it's any type anything of anything that's open air. Anything is open air. Even even arenas need, you know, in their public space outside of the arena is is uh, sometimes enticing for drone operators yeah. to just fly over and see how many people are there. Yeah, yeah. But when you get your you know, we worry about public space and public space is also when you're lining up for your ticket. Yeah. Because sure. you queue up, or if you're lining up to get into uh, a security gate, mm. you're still presenting yourself in a large mass of people. That's interesting. Now, I want to shift a little bit from the commercial aspect of drones, which I think it's it's um, as you said. I mean, you know, in my mind, what com- comes to mind is really kind of the evolution, as you mentioned, and in this case of information. Right, information has gone leaps and bounds in the last twenty years. Like it's not even recognizable. Uh, the way information is consumed, uh, um, um, the way it's uh, disseminated to where it was maybe when, when you were in Iraq in 2003. Right. Uh, and with that has come the negative aspects of information control, which is disinformation, misinformation, which starts to basically change the, the, the perceptions and the opinions of many. Well, I feel like drones is along that same course, right? Drones is changing the behaviors of individuals. It's changing the way we interact and, and consume and produce and, and convenience, I think, is, is a big part of drones because if, if you don't have to go to the pharmacy to get your prescription, right. you can drone deliver it. I see people, and it's cost effective, I see people doing this, right? It's like uh, uh, an advanced version of, uh, of of Uber Eats or things like right. that. Yeah. So that's where we're going, right? And yep. so as you mentioned, this is an evolution. So at some point down the line in the not too distant future, we're going to be living with drones flying overhead at all times, every time, yeah. you know, 24 hours a day. Well, think about ur- the next phase is urban air mobility. Yeah. So that's where people are flying around in, in unmanned vehicles as a service. Mm-hmm. So a taxi, as an example, might be an, an unmanned uh, aerial vehicle that takes you from point A to point B. Yeah. And so in that, I think that um, what I want to talk a little bit about is what is the military's role in this? You know, what what does the military sit on this? Because they are you is the military prepared to encounter adversaries that have both uh, military drones, which you know they have, but also have commercial drones with non-state actors. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think we're seeing that play out in Ukraine. Yeah, and so the answer is yes. I mean, ab- hybrid warfare. Ha- absolutely. How how could we not? How could we avoid it? Right? How could we not address it? That would just that wouldn't make any sense. This is this technology this technology is here to stay. And it's only getting better. It's maturing every day. And not only maturing in capability from a technical perspective, but in use cases is yeah. maturing as well. On the on the flight out today, I read a story about a 15-year-old Ukrainian boy who put his drone into the ba- a battle in Ukraine. And it actually was, he's like the hero of the battle with his his commercial drone that he put in place because he had eyes on the, on the uh, enemy. Oh, wow. Right. And he was able to use that drone to give that information to the Ukrainian military so they could actually fight the Russians. But it's a big story today. Uh, you know, on my, at least on my news thread from this 15 year old kid who was employing his drone because president Zelensky said, get it in the fight. Yeah. 
And he did. And so, so as far as near peer adversaries, adversarial nation states, who, who's the most advanced when it comes to the use or application of drones? Yeah, I mean, we have, we've seen that what the Russians are doing, um, but I, I don't, you know, we haven't seen what the- Iran's used drones. Yeah, methods. of course. Um, we haven't seen what the, really what the Chinese capability is, um, but from a uh, perspective of what we see from the Russians, uh, some of their platforms are pretty outdated. I mean, you look at like the Orlan, the Orlan 10. That's what I've been, so it seemed like the commercials actually surpassing to some level the military drone capabilities because it's available to be have density. And yeah. just more coverage because there's more drones. Well, also Ukraine, the Ukrainians are winning the IO war. That's so, right. <laughs> so we, what we're hearing, um, you know, I don't know, it's hard to uh, armchair quarterback that, right? But just to look at it from a technic technical perspective, um, there are platforms like the, the Turkish TB2 is a huge success for the Ukrainian army, um, military. Uh, the Israeli Harpo is a autonomous loitering uh, munition that finds its own targets. So, you know, there are, there, are, there are platforms out there from various countries that are very, very capable, you know? How, how is the Orlan 10? Is that, is, that's an ISR drone. Yeah. Is, is, is most notably, so the reason I've run into the Orlan 10 is because of the Colombia-Venezuela border conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, the Russians sold the Orlan 10 to the Venezuelan uh, regime and the Venezuelan regime created a drone battalion. And in that drone battalion, they've deployed the uh, Orlan 10 to do ISR missions along the border uh, with Colombia. Now, they claim it's because they're fighting narco-traffickers, right? But we know the Venezuelan government's well in the narco-trafficking business. More what they're doing is to spy on the Colombian military. So what they've seen was that the Orlan 10 has a capability in electronic uh, espionage, mm. that they can match it with um, um, mobile uh, electronic radar systems. Um, I think it's the P-30 uh, uh, mobile radar system. And, and that with the drone allows them the, the ability to do electronic warfare, electronic espionage on the Colombian military. Is that something that, that you think the Orlan 10 is that's the maximum capability of it? Or is I, I would think, I mean, what we're, what I've seen, and again, it's just uh, what I'm watching in the open press, right? But the, the systems the Russians are employing in Ukraine are, uh, are so simplistic. Some of them have Canon SLR cameras on them. Okay. In, instead of a real payload. Yeah. Um, some of them are, uh, the fuel tanks are, are water bottles, <laughs> you know, things like that, yeah. you know, and maybe that's a logistics problem. That could be a parts problem. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, the system, the system is designed to do what you just said, which is to provide ISR. It's not a strike capability, yeah. but we're seeing these things that are just incredibly immature. And, and then if you talk about the Turkish TB2 that Ukrainians are using, they're absolutely getting every Ukrainian dollar out of that platform by putting it into service in this war. So, and so I think you're in a, I mean, you're obviously in a growth market, but more than importantly, I think you're in something that I think here in Washington, the conversation really hasn't begun yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously people that experts, military officials that are speaking about this to policymakers on the Hill. But I don't think the policymakers are taking this as serious as they should. And probably because of what you mentioned, probably because there hasn't been that incident, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, here in the United States, at least, where drones have been involved in a major terrorist attack or a major uh, incident that 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 uh, uh, involves the American public. But that, I don't want to say that's coming, because hopefully it's not coming. But something inevitably is going to happen 
and, and spark. So when it comes to policymakers, how do we get this into their attention without, you know, hoping that a drone attack uh, alarms them into this, this uh, in, into taking action on this? Well, I think it starts with educating them, right? I mean, we, we've got, uh, our policymakers need to understand what this technology can do. And I think, you know, I, I think the FAA is making an honest effort from the commercial side of this. But when you talk about establishing law, establishing regulations, establishing uh, those things to protect us from, from this technology, it, we just need to, we need to do more education on that. I, I really think that they don't understand. See, most people think it's just a recreational tool. Yeah. That, that you, you just buy it on Amazon, you're going to go fly it in your park and, you know, you're going to have fun with it. Like in, when I grew up, um, uh, radio aircraft or, you know, those types of um, tools or toys were available, right? You could go fly this thing in the park and it, it would just, you'd and have remote, fun with it. Remote control. control. model planes. Yeah. yeah, that stuff. But we're so advanced now that, um, I'll give you a great example. I was walking my dog um, by our community pool. And I, a drone actually flew down to about 10 feet above my head okay. and just looked at me with its camera. <laughs> and then- Did you wave? <laughs> yeah, I, wa I waved at it. But it, then it just went straight up into the, into the air above me and flew away. But it was some person flying a drone near the pool that was using it to watch people walking by or, you know, whatever. Filming or something. Filming or whatever. Yeah, I, I mean- the, the technology, and that person could have been flying that drone from five kilometers away. Wow. So there's a time and distance in this capability as well. So we and, just got to fly it over the uh, congressional members into this, let, like get them alarmed by Well, it. I just, yeah, I would love to, I would love to just have the topic addressed so that people understand what capabilities out there, how it, you know, both positive and negative, but how the negative aspects could really be a bad day for the country yeah. if someone decides to do something wrong with it and the paper kind of goes into two specific things one is critical infrastructure mm -hmm. because that the, the, that bad day could most likely involve some aspect of critical infrastructure right but the second and i think this is the probably the, the most important recommendation at least for folks here in dc is that um this isn't this doesn't have to be as complicated as it sounds right it, it sounds very complex it sounds very technical uh but when you explain it bill and i think most importantly when when, when congressional members start to uh, take on this, they, they realize that this is just going to be a way of life. And, and, you know, the internet was probably super complex when it came around right. and everyone was like, what are we going to do? No, that's not going to last. And now everyone knows how to use it. I mean, it's, it's not as complex as we think. I think the same thing is going to happen with drones. Um, and in that, uh, there's a, a recommendation in the paper to create a, a standing task force on commercial drone use. And that's, I think, part of that educational process. I think if we can nudge or, or convince policymakers or just even one member on the Hill to, to stand up this kind of task force, I think we're going to see uh, uh, our legislature get ahead of the curve. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think there are initiatives through the FAA, right, to do yeah. this. But to say that there is a whole of government approach to this, I don't think it exists. Now, if yeah. someone could prove me wrong, but um, there needs to be a... Um, a government private coalition yeah. on this technology. It needs to come together at, at the government level. I mean, absolutely. It needs to be a legislator that, that takes, takes the, the uh, champions this, this uh, issue and then, you know, gathers all the smart people. And, and look, I, I don't consider myself even close to being an expert on drones, but I'm super passionate about how the technology is going to shape society. And there are people I'm connected to that do know this technology like the back of their hand, yeah. they could build this stuff themselves and they understand the capabilities. 
those are the type of people we need to get into our um, into our uh, body that's going to study this and figure out how we're going to, like I mentioned, UTM is on the way. Um, the FAA did uh, um, put out a, a rule for a digital license plate in 2020, mm. uh, but it doesn't go into effect for three years. So we're probably getting closer to that time where it goes into effect. But that still doesn't account for the drones that are already out in, in the market, are already out in the public space, because they can't do anything about those drones. Okay, It's only those drones that are going to be bought after the time uh, that the law goes into effect or the regulation. So goes you into you have to register them with a, with an authority. Well, you're supposed to now, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's, it's not something that's uh, mandatory. Yeah. yeah. And, but again, getting our, getting all the experts around this and really in thinking about it is super important because like I said, the super highways on the way, um, you could probably take a survey of this, this block we're in here and you could ask people walking by, do you own a drone? They'd probably say yes. You know, so it's a, uh, you can buy it on any, any, uh, any store, any online. No, store. really? Yeah, no, we bought ours in Amazon. So right at Amazon, they're right. They're available. So the last part I want to talk to you about is, is so as you could tell the title of the podcast, Border Wars, we talk a lot yeah, about yeah. not just our border uh, issue that we have on the U.S. Southern border, which is, I think, a big part of why we're doing the podcast, but uh, we call it just border wars, so like borders throughout, because uh, I think borders are being challenged in many different ways. We talk about weaponized drug trafficking. We talk about weaponized migration, how drones can change this concept of borders. Because I, I saw this in the Colombia-Venezuela border when I was mentioning with the Russian drones, but it's almost like as if, what do you consider a drone overflight over territorial airspace of a sovereign nation? Is that a, you know, is that like a, like a, like as if uh, the air force was flying over your, your, your airspace? Is that a, what, what is that? Well, it's, un, it's uncontrolled airspace. Yeah. So where drones fly normally is under the, 400 feet yeah. where, where air traffic is tracked. So I don't know. That's again, something that this legislative body should take up and understand. And what, what that, the reason I mentioned that is because what, what I'm concerned about is not just, you know, the illicit actors. We talked about that. I think that's definitely going to happen and, and it's already happening. Um, what I'm concerned about is when these big nation states, right? The, the, the adversaries of the United States, the, the, the autocracies of the world, the authoritarian regimes, who are looking to change geography. They're, they're literally just looking to reshape the world mm -hmm. as it stands. That's part of changing international order. If they figure out how drones can actually blur the lines on the map, meaning that it, it, it now complicates the abilities to control your sovereign territory, mm -hmm. then they can just in like litter that whole border area with drones to the point that you can't tell the difference of who's a, a Colombian drone, who's a Venezuelan drone, who's oh, a Mexican right. drone, yeah. who's a U.S. citizen drone. And, and I think that this has the potential to destabilize borders. And oh. so we have to figure that part of this out. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think if you look at, uh, again, something I just read recently, but over our border, I think our southern border, over 9,000 cartel flights of, of drones into that, the U.S. Is that right? Is that yeah. right? Wow. I think that's the number I read today. Um, so think about that. And that's probably just a snapshot in time um, over a certain period of time, maybe let's say six months or something. Yeah. So we don't even, the point is we don't even know. If we can say 9,000 is what we think in one border incident, that's a surge of capability that is, isn't even tracked. And, and no one has any ability to track it unless you're putting a drone detection and monitoring capability on the borders and you're physically doing that pattern analysis day in and day out to prove what you have. That doesn't mean you have the ability to do anything about it, 
because drone detection is not kinetic. But if you want to, or if you wanted to secure a border, or if you wanted to do something, there are kinetic capabilities to do that. And that doesn't mean shooting the drone down. It could mean taking uh, control of the drone through its RF signal. It could mean um, sending another drone up to capture it. They actually have drones that do that. that. They call them drone hunters. Okay. Um, A drone top gun. Yeah. (laughs) And they, but things like that are, but you know, everyone, it's not, it's not science. uh, It's not sci-fi. Yeah. You know, I mean, we are living this now and it's, it's getting more and complicated, more mature. Again, go back to what, what's happening on the border of this country, what's happening in Colombia. These platforms are being used and they're being used for the purpose of, Drug cartels business, yeah, right? They deliver drugs, dr- whatever, whatever it may be, and they're also being used as weapons delivery platforms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not just you know, um, a, you know, a service into into the country. It is they're using them for for uh, kinetic strikes as well. So that that uh, brings me to one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Um, so in in your career, and I'm I'm looking at your your short bio. It's not that short, but it's uh it's it's abbreviated here. Um, you spent a lot of time with Northern Command, mm-hmm. uh, both at, at the Combatant Command and also at the Theater Special Operations Command level with uh, SOC North at, at different points in your career, I'm seeing. Um, so what is the military's role, uh, particularly the, the special operations role when it comes to the southern border? Yeah, the, it, so really no role. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's all law enforcement, right? Okay. So, um, and that's and that's how, it, I mean, I think it's how it should be, right? It's it, It's... It's the sovereign protection of our of our borders, and that falls on the LE side of the house. Um, but what we do get to learn by working in those environments is what is actually happening. So that you know, that it's almost like a lesson learned event because when the the gov- or when the DOD goes somewhere, it's normally outside. It's always outside of the country. Um, so you know, when you deploy into a region like Ukraine, we see right now with um, Ukrainian military fighting the Russians. There's a lot of lessons learned they're gleaning, but they're also creating a lot of lessons learned for everyone in the world to see. And this is a discussion I had with a friend of mine uh, yesterday was, think about all the things we're learning right now and how that's valuable for the next conflict. Because what's happening now is it's not going to go away. It's, it's, it, you could almost say it's an RMA, right? A revolution mm. in military affairs. I think I've even tried to equate it but it's where a technology actually changes warfare. Mm-hmm. So a good example is the the machine gun in World War One. Yeah. The well, the uh, rifle musket back in the early days. And, yeah, and I wrote a paper when I was in the War College about how social media was an RMA. Yeah, social media changed warfare. Yeah, the uh, IO during yeah. uh, the Arab Awakening, mm-hmm. and so now we're seeing drones do the same thing. And so I think it's, it's is it a, enough to change like a whole generation of warfare, or yeah. is it yeah? So we could go I into think the so. fifth generation. I think so. Um, think about uh, the power of the Russian Air Force, yeah. right? Well, the drones aren't creating air parity, but they're creating some sort of parity for the ground organization to operate at a different level. Yeah. So it's something there that's happening, but, you know. Well, I think especially when you combine it with the cyber domain, yeah, then it becomes really uh, an equalizer. Well, uh, and the true historians will probably argue with me, but I think uh, – the, this is, we're seeing an RMA. And again, um, it, the term is revolution, right? In military affairs. I think it's an evolution in military yeah. affairs, but still it's changing 
the framework. It, it, look at it. It's another tool in the, in the, in the tool bag that is having significant I effects. I think you're right. because I mean, if we think about the big shift that we've had in the last hundred years, which is the third to fourth generation, right? So the third generation was all uh, logistics and uh, the ability to use uh, command and control. Uh, and then fourth generation flips it on its head because it introduces non-state actors yeah. in ways that we never saw. And because public opinion becomes that much more important with the information, the inter- evolution of the internet and, and the way information is spread. Social media then comes around, which revolutionizes the way people use information and by extension, as we mentioned, disinformation. And now drones come into the picture, which combines both that aspect of IO, the cyber realm, as well as the conventional military kinetic strikes and uh, other kinds of uh, different kinds of payloads. So it it essentially combines uh, many different aspects of warfare I, no, I think you're right. I think we're moving into a new t- domain, a new, new territory. And I, what, I, what I fear is that our adversaries, the Russians, I mean, they're not look, look, looking too good right now with their drone program in, in Ukraine, but they're going to learn. Yeah. They're, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna fix that. Yeah. Uh, we don't really fully know what China's uh, drone capabilities are. In Iran, uh, despite being very deficient on many levels, they've shown that they can have uh, PGMs, uh, precision guided munitions with drones, that can uh, blow things up like the Saudi Aramco. Uh, uh, yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. yeah, we've seen that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I think what you just described is fantastic because it really outlines where where we've been and where we're going to. Um, you're never going to have to. You're, we're never going to not need a ground force. So we're never not going to need tanks or airplanes or any of the te- technology we have now. The drone is just an added layer of capability and complexity to the modern battlefield that what we call the MCO environment, right? The major combat operations. That's what we're seeing in Ukraine or we did initially and, and, and we still are, but that is the level of complexity. So think about just the matter. And you talk about information, the amount of data that that's coming in for a commander to make decisions on is extremely complex. So they have so much coming in, it almost fogs the ability to make decisions because you have so much information. Information overload, yeah. Right. When in in past conflicts, the commanders had decisions they had to make based on finite details. You know, the scouts are reporting this or, you know, this aircraft is reporting this. Now it's a data influx. And so I think I think it just complicates it. It almost... It, it does make it a complex problem. Yeah. It, it seems like that's something also that 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 would have been atypical because it wouldn't have been something that you know, an ordinary mission set that the TSOC would do. Um, and so let's let, let me just end with this uh, uh, first, uh, Bill. I think from your book to your paper on drones, and we we have a title for it. We call it "Killer Drones," not yeah. to alarm people, but essentially they can become uh, very deadly if we don't uh, start to engage in this. To all the work that you're currently doing. Uh, what do you want to plug? Do you, is there anything that you want to you want to give a shout out to uh, as we end the, the podcast? No, just um, great conversation. Thanks for for letting me come in and, and do this. Um, no, I really I, my you did a great job talking about the book. That's sort of what I'm really happy about. What I want people to it's really to read. A great book. I think I think definitely needs to get uh, more publicity so that more people can read it. I I, I feel like uh, we're coming up on you know we did the the pod we did the the webinar on the 20th anniversary of 9 11. Well, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, which right. I think would be March of next year. Right. Right. Yeah. right. So uh, I'm sure that's going to hopefully there isn't an incident like we had with Afghanistan in Iraq with, right. a, you know, a kind of a disastrous withdrawal. 
but it's going to become a point of conversation. The 20 years, what have we learned, experiences. And I think that's a good time to get people to look at things like your book, your memoirs that I think revisit a lot of these things that are uh, now in history, uh, believe it or not. Yeah, transitioning the the military out of this counterinsurgency mindset yeah. and getting back to MCO, which is major combat operations and getting the force trained. One of the great things about you and I, when we were there in 2003, at that point in my career, I had been in the military close to 14 years. And in those previous 14 years, what did I do? I just trained. Mm. I trained and trained and trained. So we became very proficient as a military on how we uh, executed our tasks and our and our mission. And I think the statistic is the we were we had destroyed the Iraqi army in 17 days. Yeah. I think is what it took. And then we were in getting into this um, stability operations mentality, which, as uh, you probably read through history, was where the insurgency uh, regrouped. Yeah. And then in that summer of 03, August, September is when we see the first IED. I remember. And I then remember. the change, and then we're there for another decade. Right? So, I mean, we're talking about evolution of warfare. I think Iraq is a good case study for the evolution of warfare because yeah. we, with the 20 years, we absolutely saw warfare evolve, everything from with drones getting introduced to the battle space. Obviously, we went from insurgency to dealing with classical uh, counterinsurgency and military. Um, and, and I think that Iraq as a battle space will continue to evolve also because it's between Iran and Syria. Yeah. And so we know Syria is a major conflict. Iran's a major adversary. And so Iraq's just it's got strategic the, ground. It's strategic ground. And it's got the unfortunate being geographically positioned in a very difficult part uh, of the world. But Bill, thank you again. We're going to definitely have you invite you to come back uh, probably on the, 20th anniversary of Iraq. That'd be great. To start talking I, have a, I have a second book coming out. Do you? Uh, yeah. Um, it about? It's going to editing. It's um, it's a leadership book uh, that talks, it also has, it's three parts. It's leadership, um, evolving technology, and okay. then security. It's like all your worlds coming together. Yeah. It's a, it's cool. my wife's idea. She said you need Where'd to Where'd you become it. so prolific? Because, you know, you said you, I wasn't a writer, but you're writing, now you're writing papers with us, books on the side. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, it just, uh, the pandemic, the other pandemic <laughs> you gotta do put something. Me into writing mode. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. Thank well, you. Bill, it's awesome. Great to talk to thank you. you, sir. We're going to, we're going to, well, a couple quick things to, to say. Everyone go out and buy this book inside Abu Ghraib. It's going to be, it's already important. It's already, uh, I think, uh, a, a big part of the, the military history and the war in Iraq and the war in terror. But more importantly, I think next year with the 20th anniversary of the Iraqi invasion. I think we need to have well-documented accounts of what took place. And this book definitely covers that. And obviously look at our paper called Killer Drones. It's authored by Colonel Bill Edwards. Uh, it talks about everything we talked about here in the podcasting and puts it in a very concise uh, part of what we call the Trans-Regional Threats Journal. So you can download that on our website, securefreesociety.org. And, and if you're new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, or subscribe to our Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, hit the like button on this video uh, and also hit the little bell so you get all the notifications of future podcasts as we put them out. Bill, great to have you yeah, uh, on the podcast again and we'll be in touch. Subscribe to the Border Wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.